What does it mean for us? Now, I want to be very practical today and start in thinking through decision-making that each and every one of us face on a daily basis. Scenarios approach you. It's, it's at night. <coughs> Excuse me. It's at night and you're, you're channel surfing. And up pops a very provocative image onto the screen. Captures your attention in a way that you wished it wouldn't. What do you do in that moment? Or you are clicking through your websites and up pops something on the edge of the screen or something just comes and fills the screen there or you typed in an address wrong. Right? I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the pornography world has figured out ways to just create their, the name of their site off of one letter being wrong off common sites that you're visiting. So if you type that wrong, boom, up comes a site, and there it is in front of you. What do you do in that moment? Or you're a young person, and you've got some friends who are making plans to go off and do something that you know your parents don't want you doing. They have made that clear, but you found a little bit of a loophole. You found their back is turned and you can get away with this in some way. And you're contemplating what to do with that. All right, well, what do you do in that moment? I'm thrilled with the... Uh, there's a bunch of folks here are participating. My applause to you guys and gals participating in kind of an in-house biggest loser competition. I don't know if you've been aware of this. There's, we've got some big losers around here. <clears throat> Y'all knew that when you met the pastoral team. But there's other big losers that are here um, participating. You know, I, what do you do? I mean, here you are. You're, you're trying to take care of health issues. Listen, health issues serve you, serves your family. Uh, it, it serves people in your life. And, and you're tempted with the refrigerator at a moment. You're tempted to overindulge the flesh. What do you do in that moment? When you face that moment of decision. Husbands and wives, you have been sinned against by your spouse, either neglectfully or intentionally. Everybody know that there's a difference? Right? Some of us are professional neglectors. Some of us are just, you know, we take our swords out intentionally before we wound the other person. Um, but for the hundredth time, you have been sinned against. This is getting old. What do you do in that moment? Now, the reality of our lives is that's, this is the agenda for our life every day. These little scenarios are popping up every day, and we're making a decision about them every day. And then you and I are living in the fallout of those decisions. You are here today reaping those decisions. You've made decisions in your past. You're living in the fruit of them right now. So whether those were decisions you began to make when you were 14 years old or whether they're decisions that you just started making two weeks ago, you are living in the fruit of those decisions. You know, and if we looked at life that way a little more carefully, I think it would extract some of the mystery of life. Right? You know, there was a point in which pornography wasn't an issue for you. And then it became an issue for you. And then over time, it remained in your life to where now you got this mystery thing going on. It's like, I don't, yeah, I don't know how to deal with this. You know, it's just so this or uh, I don't know how to stop. And you do remember that there was a point in which you weren't doing that. And then poof, up came an opportunity. And in that moment, you made a decision followed by other decisions. And you are where you are. If I understand life that way, it really removes some of this mystery suffering going on in our lives. We're kind of where we are because we've made some choices in our lives. And I want to get at the issue today of what's going on when we go to make these choices. What's going on in our heart when decisions are in front of us in all these types of categories? And the question I've raised is, what do you really want in your heart. As we've studied through this series, you can go ahead and open up again to Ezekiel 36. Your Bible probably flops open to that now. Without any help, 
Just think, before you maybe couldn't even find that book, now the Bible automatically opens to it. Ezekiel 36, my question for us to consider is, does walking in newness of life mean something more than the same old me with a new list of do's and don'ts? Listen, can can I tell you, and today here, there's a reality that there are folks here today, seated in this auditorium, that Christianity, for them, the religious practice, the moral component of being a Christian in their life, truly is same old me with some new ideas that I'm trying to do. That's what Christianity is for some that are here. You, you, you grew up, maybe you grew up in this religion and now you're, now you're part of this religion. Or maybe you grew up going to this kind of church, now you go to this kind of church. Uh, you know, in New Orleans you probably grew up Catholic and maybe you find yourself visiting a Baptist church or this church. And you're going to listen for some new things. Oh, well in this church they read the Bible. In this church, they get together in small groups. And you know, all right, same old me with a new set of things to do. And if we're not careful, that's what Christianity is. And, and if that is what we're operating out of, what an incredible position of weakness we are in. What an uninformed position of weakness that we are in. Because that is not how the Bible describes a Christian. In Ezekiel chapter 36, remember the context, God's longing for this day when he's going to come and do something amazing in his people. People who have failed to live in a manner worthy of who God is in their lives. But he says, you know, there's coming a day. I'm going to change that. I'm going to do something in the midst of my people that's going to bring success to my people being able to walk in the way in which I want them to walk. Verse 26, Ezekiel 36. He says, in that day, I will give you A new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God says he's going to do that. God guarantees and promises there's coming a day. Now the question is, has the day come yet? And if it hasn't come yet, well then all we can do is just long for it. Hopefully one day it'll be here. But when we read the New Testament, we find out the New Testament is the day. The day has come. These truths now are for the people of God. They're not for the future. They're for now. So there's this removal of a stony heart and a replacement with a softened heart. Jeremiah was a prophet during the same time period as Ezekiel. Prophesying into similar situations, only in a different location. And he said something very similar. This is the Spirit of God is sort of ruminating this wonderful news into people's lives through these prophets. Jeremiah says it this way. Verse 31 of chapter 31 in Jeremiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like... The covenant that I made with their fathers. Not like I'm going to do something new and it's it's going to be different. There will be dissimilarities between these two that we have to be aware of. Not like that that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But... Right? This is a contrasting word. This is where God says, I'm highlighting that there's going to be something different here. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. You know, listen, I, I realize in some of the background religiously where we've come from, some of us would believe that the person who is the official, the person who is in the ministry, Uh, the person who is a priest or a pastor, has some unique access to God that others do not have, that you don't have. Okay, Can I disavow you of such an idea? That is absolutely false. When I read the Bible, this Bible better means something to me when it says things like this. No longer shall you teach everyone and his neighbor, and each his brother saying, No, Lord, for they shall all 
know me from the least to the greatest of them. They shall all know me. Why? Because God's making a new thing happen where His Spirit is going to come into the least and the greatest. And the same Spirit of God is going to write upon hearts from the least to the greatest. So there's not anybody in this room who knows Christ who hasn't had that happen. You should never show up in a counseling meeting and say to the person that you're meeting with, well, you don't understand because why? Because that person has some advantage over you? No, they do not. Not a bit. The Apostle Paul, we're standing here today. He would tell you he has no advantage over anyone in this room. The same work that God did and prophesied about through Jeremiah and Ezekiel was the same work for me and you as it was for the Apostle Paul. Now listen, religiously, that messes with our background. I grew up believing that the priest had an access to God and he had something that he could get from God and go to God with that I didn't have. Okay, That is not in the New Testament. The day that Jeremiah saw, the day that Ezekiel saw, was an all-inclusive day where the where every person who belonged to God would have this amazing work going on on the inside of us. Now, some of you are hearing that today, quite honestly, for the first time. So that would mean, as a Christian, you have been walking out your Christian life with a belief of your inability to do certain things and be certain things. You, you believe in deficiency. You don't believe in these great songs that Eric led us in today, in these great words of promise that he rehearsed for us from Scripture. We don't believe those things. We believe in less. Listen, if you're believing in less, then you go to make decisions in your life. Thing pops up on the screen. Situation comes into your life. Listen, if I'm deficient then it makes perfect sense why I respond sinfully to my wife, doesn't it? You see, because maybe the pastor could do that. Maybe the priest could do that. Maybe somebody who's got an advantage over me could not respond sinfully to their spouse. But not me. See, on a day-to-day basis, what you believe biblically is informing how you're deciding. And then you're living in the fruit of that. I should be standing and believing, no, you know? I have been made a partaker. That that verse that that he read this morning to us. I've been made a partaker of the divine nature. It's as though God said, Keith, take that thick, thick, thick extension cord and plug your life into me. And the power of who I am is going to flow through you. Listen, that's not a limited idea. So a few people get that and and a bunch of people don't. Every person has said, plug in to the divine nature of God. You've become a partaker of that. Well, that informs what I can and can't do. If I'm plugged into God, can, can I respond in grace to my wife? If I've been sinned against by somebody, do I need to justify that and say, no, well, my sinful response was based on their sinful activity. Well, that shouldn't have been the case for you because you're plugged into the divine nature. You know, the, the same nature that had Jesus up on a cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? That, that same God could have called down fire and liquidated a few people there. Right? Could have been all over with. But it wasn't. And the same nature that was in Christ is in us. That has to inform me when I go to make decisions in my life. Now let me contrast a few things here. The new is not like the old in a number of ways. I want to get us out of this idea that it's the same old Keith. I've come into a church, met a lot of nice people. I've learned some new things, but same old Keith is going to now try and live this new life that I've discovered amongst new people and new ways of doing things. And I'm going to give it my best effort. I'm serious this time. I'm really going to, I'm really going to turn things around. Okay, that is not the new covenant. All right, listen, here's... The new is not like the old in a number of ways. Number one, in the old, there had not yet occurred a death. In the new, there's been a death that preceded the new life. Not only preceded it, but it made it possible. In the old, there was not a death. There was a stony heart. There was a dead existence before God, dead to God. In the new, that's been changed. Colossians 2, verse 20. It says, if with Christ you died. Now, that word there in the Greek is actually more of a word that should say since. It's, it's a word for consideration. If or since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, or the, element, the principles, right? Just living life with elemental principles in our lives. 
Why, if that's true, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? I want you to hear the puzzlement of Paul, because we've heard this several times in this series. We've heard it in Romans 6 when the the Christians ask him the question, shouldn't I just continue to sin more so that grace will abound more? What? We've heard Paul kind of cross-eyed looking at you like you had two heads. What on earth are you talking about? How? How? How would you do that? Being as you've died. See, same point. He doesn't understand that, and we shouldn't either. He says, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Why do we buy into legalism? Why do we buy into rules? Why do we buy into these approaches? Because they appear to be wise. They appear like they're going to help you. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Boy, when you do that, it doesn't sound real good, does it? And asceticism and severity to the body. But, listen, but they are of no Value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The flesh with all of its cravings and all of its desires that screams to be indulged. When that image pops up on the screen, the flesh jumps in wanting to be indulged in that moment. And you might have rules and regulations that say don't go there, don't touch that, don't taste that. And that appears to be wise. And in some degree, that would be appropriate But not when you extract revelation of truth. You want to know why you're going to be able to handle the image that pops up? It's got everything to do with your old stony heart being changed and that death that occurred. That's what Paul says here. The issue for your success is how well you are convinced and understanding that you're no longer alive in that sense. You have died in that way and now you are alive to God. So why would you? Now, there's some incredibly great news here because there's, there's a bit of an implication here. These things, self-made religion and rules, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That won't help you in that moment. But there is a way that will. It's not as though Paul's hopeless here. He's not saying, hey, you know what? When it comes to indulgence of the flesh, forget it. Nobody in this life gets out of that one. You're going, to, you're going to give in to the indulgence of the flesh. You've got no hope. Those rules won't help, and there's nothing that will help you. Is that, is that the tone of Paul here? No, it's not. He said, there are issues of indulgence. Let me tell you, your self-made religion and your self-effort and the same old you trying to apply some new rules to your life, you will never overcome those issues. But there is a way. And he speaks on it in other places, right? In Galatians 5. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Same element. There is a way. No one should be here today thinking that giving in to fleshly indulgence is inevitable for me because I've been doing it for 15 years in a row. Well, you you may have a track record, but that doesn't undo the the truth here. If we walk in newness of life by the Spirit, I will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Romans 8 says, If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh... You will live. See, there's hope here in the New Testament that I don't have to live that way. So, in the old, there wasn't a death. But in the new, there's been a death that's occurred. John Piper helps us as a church as we think through how we apply some of these things. He says, a church which erects regulations about food and drink as a means of judging or excluding does not yet know what it means to die with Christ and be freed from the powers of the world. Whenever authentic joyful confidence in Christ diminishes, regulations are brought in to preserve what the power of Christ once created. If you erect enough regulations and build a big enough endowment, an institution can endure for decades after the spiritual dynamic that brought it into existence is gone. You've been in any church for more than one generation. Listen, this happens. It happens today. Ever heard of a first and second generation Christian? First generation Christian doesn't know anything. Just a knucklehead living out in the world. Hadn't figured out any of the things of truth. Hadn't been around truth in their life. They'd been around religion, but not truth, maybe. And they get saved, and all these things are brand new. 
and they take off by the grace of God. Their heart is overwhelmed. They can't believe this goodness of God that's come to them. And zoom, off they go, and they begin to live a life a certain way. And then they have children. And they want to impart that way of life to their children. And they turn around and do it with rules and regulations and boundaries and pressure and shame. And, and here you've got a generation that's not experiencing the Spirit of God, not experiencing the grace of God. They're experiencing the principles that these guys learned. And how did they learn it? They learned it by grace. <laughs> they learned it by the Spirit, by the grace of God. But then when they go to impart it, they impart principles and rules that people try to strap on in their life now. And churches will do that for years and years and years. And see, there's enough language of grace going on in that church to where you still think you're doing that. By grace, but you're not. That can happen to us. Second difference, the old had external writing. Right? Jeremiah talks about the difference, the contrast, and this is why it caught their attention, because the old law was written on stone. In the new, it is written on the heart. It's, it's now internal. The righteousness of God that was on stone has now come in here. It's resonant in here. Third, <clears throat> the old was being practiced by people with hard, hostile, veiled hearts. Right? You can go read 2 Corinthians 3 for some help with that. The new is being practiced by people with soft, pre-programmed, willing, inspired hearts. Isn't that what Ezekiel and Jeremiah have said? I'm going to write on your hearts. I'm going to take out this old, unresponsive, stony heart. I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to write on it. It's kind of like it's, it's already got Microsoft installed. It's already there. It's not like you just got this empty hard drive and, okay, I've got to fill it back up again. No, 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 God wrote on it. He has written upon it. He has pre-programmed the heart of the Christian and given them a softness to it, a willingness to do. Even a desire to do now is now in the heart where it wasn't in the heart before. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work of his good pleasure. That's a verse worth meditating on for hours at a time. It is God who's at work in you to both accomplish the willingness to do and the doing. It's not just a matter of doing it. Just do it. No, it's a matter of God wants to accomplish in you the willingness to do it. So not only are you called to do some things, God's work would involve you actually wanting to do those things. The person who does not serve the Lord with gladness is still under the curse in Deuteronomy. God looked for the day when he would do such a work in people's hearts that it wouldn't just be a bunch of people who are doing duty, but they really didn't want to do it, but they're doing it anyway. No, when God gets a hold of the human heart, you want to do these things. As a matter of fact, you extremely want to do those things. Hebrews 13.20 Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. Now here's my question to you about this word that some of us think is a curse word, holiness. <clears throat> what is it to you? A. Thank you, Matt. Is holiness A. Behavior that you're supposed to do, but you don't really want to do. Is that what holiness is to you? I know I'm supposed to do it, but quite honestly, I really don't want to do it. Right, now, pick a category where you know that's already true in your life. Right? You're supposed to do it. You're, you're supposed to be here in church today. But you didn't really want to be here. Right? There's a dozen places you'd have rather been. I mean, do you start feeling that way about certain things in your walk, in your life? You know, I'm supposed to submit to my husband. I don't really want to, but I'm supposed to. Right? So, yeah, okay. I'm going to do it. All right, is that a view of holiness? Or is your view of holiness is the life that you most want to live, that you find attractive and rewarding and fulfilling? Can I use a cheap little tawdry word? Fun. I had to use that word because most of us aren't interested in attractiveness and rewarding and fulfilling as much as we just want to have fun. Is it fun? Yeah. Run toward it. Oh, that was fun. It's such a trivial little thing. And, you know, quite honestly, 
There is, there is fleshly fun that probably falls into a different realm of what we're describing, but there is a fun in God that should exist. Because if that's where I traffic, for me, the highest enjoyment in life is that which is fun. And the highest ability in me doesn't find things about God fun. Then I've got this huge disconnect going on. My Christian life needs to be taken back for a refund. Something didn't go right. You got something defective. The power went out on it. The Christian life should be exhilarating, exciting. It should be what I want. Holiness is a call into what I most want in my life. Okay, now let's, let's take Titus, two, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14 apart for a few minutes. Titus is in the T section of your New Testament. First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus. All right, so here we are. We're in the day Ezekiel has described, and Paul's trying to explain to us the day now. The day has arrived. This day of the new heart, the stony heart being removed. Death has occurred. New life has come. There's writing in the heart of the new believer. There's the work of the Spirit affecting the heart of the new believer. So Paul is in this day, and he's trying to explain this realm to us. And he says this in Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives here in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, remember that sprinkling with water? To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All right, let's just back up and take a little bit of this apart. We get introduced to something here that I, I really do want to take a moment to adjust the way we think about this subject for a moment. Because it's great verse here in chapter, uh, verse 11 and verse 12. The grace of God has come on the scene. The grace of God has appeared. And now really the grace of God has always been on the scene. But it's almost like, uh, you know, the shades got removed. It, it brightens in the person of Christ. And, and of his fullness we have now received grace upon grace. So the grace of God has made an incredible appearance with clarity into the lives of those who are calling upon God. Those who are being saved. It's appeared. And it does this. It trains us, or some of your translations are going to say, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodly desires that are in our lives. Now, some of us, look at a couple of these quotes here that are very helpful. Some of us have limited the language of the grace of God to where in our idea about grace being present on the scene, grace just always says yes. Grace is gracious. It's always saying yes. Grace doesn't say no. No sounds confrontational. You don't get confronted by grace, right? It says yes. Well, here's some very helpful thought. Terry Virgo in his book, God's Lavish Grace, says, Paul told Titus that the grace of God appeared instructing us to say no. Saying no is a vital part of holy living. The downward gravitational pull of human society is so all-pervasive that if we don't learn to say no, we will soon be in trouble. If young people don't learn to say no, they will be quickly compromised by the opposite sex. If they don't learn to say no, they will soon be experimenting with drugs and alcohol. No is a word we must be instructed to say. It is an anti-social word. It goes against the tide. It takes courage and commitment to say it. It needs strong motivation and grace motivates powerfully. Now, what an interesting thought. Grace is motivating me to say no. Again, it's, I'm saying no, as he says, to worldly passions. You know what passion is inside of you, right? It's a strong desire. So this is not, you know, there's a lot of things in our lives that are easy to say no to, aren't there? And by the grace of God, hallelujah, we're just saying no to all those things. We'd have said no without God. (laughs) 
We never did want that. I never wanted to do that. I never wanted to pursue that. It's when grace comes into your life that enables you to say no to things that you're passionately wanting to go after. And something deeper of God supplants that. Again, Terry Virgo says, In the coming of Christ, grace suddenly appeared, not to lower the standards, but to equip believers to rise to unprecedented heights. Grace comes to motivate and enable us to live a totally new life. Ken Hughes says, Grace, rightly perceived, compels holiness. This is not a natural logic. We must confess. In the popular mind, those who are full of grace are supposed to say, Okay, that's all right. That's all right. Fine. Never mind. Go ahead. But for the apostle, grace means we say no. Now listen, there is some very, very poor, poor teaching on grace in the world today. Poor because it's drastically incomplete. Grace gets associated with freedom and it's about, that's about as far as the Bible teacher wants to go. So it's almost as though the freedom then begins to be presented as, you know, well with grace... Grace has freed me into being able to say yes to all kinds of things. It's like, you know, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, so therefore I get to say yes to so much more now. But, but Titus is saying the opposite. Grace teaches me to say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness, yet many folks who teach on grace teach that grace is actually teaching me to say yes to unrighteousness in the name of grace. That's not the voice of grace that we find in Scripture. Right? When we get to issues in our life and... You know, going to see an R-rated movie. You know, well, you know, hey, dude, you know, I'm, I'm, under, I'm under grace, man. And so grace has, what, enabled me to say yes to that which might be harmful to my soul, that might pop images up in front of me, that begin to create a, a desire and an indulgence in me. Grace is saying yes to that now. Is that right? Grace is causing me and... De- Stirring up a desire in me to say yes to unrighteousness. You know, just, I'm going to go hang out at a bar every once in a while. You know, and, you know, and don't hang that stuff on me. You know, that you can't do that. Listen, I'm not hanging it on you. I'm not telling you you can't do it. You can go get sloshed on your way out of here. Okay, and I'm telling you, if you die in a car wreck, if you really are saved, you make a stupid decision and you die in a car wreck. Uh, I'm not sitting here telling you, you're going straight to hell. You're going to hell. I don't read the Bible that way. I don't see that in the Bible. So if you want to be freedom in your choice, great. Okay, but, but don't tell me it's grace that's causing that. Right? You know, it's, well, you know, I'm under grace, man. So, you know, I don't tithe. You know, I don't tithe because, you know, that tithing thing was Old Testament. Uh, you know, it was, under, it was part of the law. And, you know, I'm under grace now. But grace teaches me to say no to unrighteousness and yes to righteousness. See, this, this is a myth. I put this myth in your outline there. Grace produces a freedom that leads to a casual, careless relationship with sin. That's what we, you know, if, we, if, if I'm in a church that's teaching grace, then I expect that there's just not a lot of holding anybody's feet to the fire. There's not strong convictions. You don't stand in the pulpit and say, that's wrong. Don't do that. You know, that's not grace. I don't hear grace in that, man. It doesn't sound like grace. Almost as though our definition for grace on the scene means that I become careless and casual about sin. But yet in this passage, grace grace does not say yes to unrighteousness. It is saying no to unrighteousness. Grace is teaching me to say no to unrighteousness. And careless, no, that's not what Ezekiel sounded like either. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to obey. Careful to obey. So if in my life I'm somehow posture myself to where there are issues that are questionable, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're those, those gray matters, and I'm drawn to them, and I give myself to indulgences in the flesh, and I don't like anybody coming along and hanging on me the word, you shouldn't be doing that. Hey, man, you know, hey, back off, dude. You know, don't be hanging that on me. I'm, I'm under grace. I don't know what you're under. I'm serious. Because grace in your life would be screaming you toward unprecedented heights in God. And it would be teaching you to say no to unrighteousness. 
so that you would be careful. Now listen, no, I don't want to lose where I started here. Careful from the heart. This is where the disconnect is. You would be careful because you want to be careful. Not because the pastors or your covenant group leader or some righteous Joe in your life is forcing you to be careful with their words or insults or expectations. Now, that's a problem if that's the way it's happening. But see, grace hasn't appeared to teach people to say yes to unrighteousness and ungodly passions. It's taught us to say no when grace is on the scene. Now, remember, this is Mythbuster number two. Mythbuster number one from a few weeks ago, if you can remember this. Grace enables me to draw near to God. That's what grace does. So when I get more and more into the flesh and pursuing things of the flesh, I am less and less inclined to draw near to God. I don't know people who are indulging the flesh in all kinds of categories, claiming they're under grace, who are loving drawing near to God. I I don't know people like that. By contrast, the craving for passing pleasure is an indicator of my disconnect from truly experiencing and seeing God. It is the symptom of a life that is unsatisfied and distant from God. It is the evidence of a lack of grace. See, when I find myself squirming for bigger clothing, you know, I just, you know, can I just push the boundaries out a little bit here? You know, I mean, and I'm going to try and do that because, you know, I've, I've sat through church. Keith said we could come to church naked. So, you know, if, uh, I'm just pushing the walls out a little bit here. I mean, grace, grace allows me to do that. Remember... True grace opens the way that I may draw near to God. And if I'm drawing near to God, I guarantee you the delight you will be experiencing, the tasting and seeing the goodness of God will make you not want those things that are over there. If you're finding that, you know, I have these desires that are awakened in me for stuff way over there on the fringe. And I'm always having to argue with you legalist Christians because I'm wanting stuff on the edges of Christianity. I guarantee you it's not because you're delighting in God. It's not because God is all satisfying and a thrill and fun in your heart. It's because God is boring you that I have to go look for something else. And please hear me. I know I'm, I'm yelling at you right now. Please hear me. It's not my intention today to yell you away from the boundaries and to make you make your world smaller. I almost want you to go on the other side of the fence so you can figure out what you really want. What do you really want? Quit standing at the edge acting like you want that. Is that really what you want? See, if God's at work, He's writing things on your heart. He's writing things in the want-to category. Right? This is the want-to category. My heart wants to do certain things. Well, God has been faithful to decide to write things in that spot so that I actually will want them. Next thought from this passage here. There is a desire to say no. Right? Grace has appeared and it teaches us to say no. There is a desire To say, no, it's not just some duty. It's not holy obligation. It's not the imposition of a culture of people. There's a desire in me to say no to unrighteousness and worldly passions. Terry Virgo again says, people instructed by grace will make decisions that come from their renewed heart. Grace teaches us to say no. This is very different from reluctantly yielding to an external law which forcefully and unyieldingly communicates, thou shalt not. Listen, this is a missing ingredient for way too many of us as Christians. Grace, unlike the law, doesn't externally impose upon me its views, and then I just got to just toughen up and do it. I don't want to do it. Holiness is not what I want. But I know I'm supposed to. I'm a Christian. Supposed to come to covenant group meeting. Here I am. Boy, I'm telling you, sometimes your covenant group leaders, they are bumping into this misunderstanding. Because you're not there because you want to be there. You're there because of the pressure that would come upon you. Maybe your own inflected pressure, or maybe the pressure of the group, or maybe your covenant group leader is very vocal when you're not there. And says something to you. So that, that pressure gets on you. So you're pressured into it. But see, grace teaches me 
to say no. It doesn't obligate me to take a position of no that I don't want. It teaches me to say no. When I say no to unrighteousness, it's because I don't want that. And I know some of you here have experienced what that really feels like. Right? Uh, image pops up on the screen, on your TV. There's an aspect of your flesh that's saying, I want that. But I can honestly say in my own heart, there's something greater in me that says, I don't. I don't want that. No lingering, no hanging out there. No, my flesh is saying, no, 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 don't, don't move along so fast. Whoa, wait a minute, man. We just got a good look at that. But there's something greater in me, honestly, that causes me to look at that and say, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want that. Not because, huh, what if someone caught me? You know, what if my wife walked in and I was looking at this? What if the staff found out and I had to, I had to confess it in an accountability meeting? You know, as though I don't really want this, but I'm going to do it for all those reasons. Hey, I, I think you're missing something. I think you're drastically, sadly missing something. And the Christian life is one day after another of doing things you don't want to do. See, I want to watch that, but I don't get to because I'm a Christian. That's a terrible, terrible indictment. Virgo goes on and says, sadly, when Christians have not discovered the riches of grace, they often give the impression that they are externally bound and even reluctant in their law-keeping. They can communicate to the unbeliever that they are simply not allowed to do what worldly people do and that, quote, Christians simply don't do those sort of things, though perhaps betraying a hint that they only wish they could. Often, our failure to demonstrate wholehearted and joyful acceptance of God's holy standards communicates to the onlooker that we are unhappy and frustrated people chafing against the imposition of religious rules, which we are now obliged to keep. The transformation which grace accomplishes is altogether different. It's different than that. Grace persuades. That's a great word. Grace persuades and instructs us inwardly. Grace comes and persuades me to its viewpoint to its position. I become persuaded. It's not that I have a rule that's brought to me and now I'm obligated to keep it. No, grace comes and persuades me that I agree. That's a great idea. I like that. I want to live that way. That's what grace does when it's unleashed in our hearts. It opens our eyes to the wonders of God's kindness and the attractiveness, the attractiveness of God's ways. See, ultimately, you have the world ways, you have the decisions here. You have the world's way, you have God's way. Which one is more attractive will win in the day of decision-making. And if, I, you know, if I'm reading books like Finally Alive, and I'm hanging around with God, and I'm seeing the splendor and wonder of God, in the day of me making a decision, grace has attracted me to God in such a way that now saying no to ungodliness, of course I'm going to say no. Who wants that at the expense of this? Not me. That's very different than how many, many Christians are living their lives. Now, let me just catch you on some lingo here. When you hear yourself describing things that you do and don't do, particularly to people outside the church, you know, do, do you use words like, uh, you know, well, but we don't, we don't get to go to R-rated movies. My parents don't let us do that. We don't, we don't, we don't get to? What, because that's really what you want to? Well, yeah. I really want to, but see, I don't get to because I live in a corral. And, you know, I'm standing on the fence of the corral right now, careening over like a giraffe to see what you get to do because it's boring in here. What do all you guys get to do? We don't get to do that. We're Christians. Wow, they all want to come in, I'm sure. Whoo, that sounds like a party going on. Let's join. Well, no, no, we, no, we can't come. We, we have to go to church. <laughs> really? That's how you feel. I'm sure they all want to line up behind you to have what you got going on. Well, could I come do some things that I don't want to do too? You know, that's, that's how we're presenting this. Listen, there, there's, let me just warn you, there's coming a, a tragic day of, of, of explosion, resentful explosion in your life. Because you can be here, and no matter what we talk about, grace of God, and being motivated by the grace of God, and if you're here, 
and you've never gotten to the point of discovering what that really means, well, then you're here partly in a way that you don't want to be here. And, and then you hear us talk about, not only be here, we want you to be at a parenting seminar next weekend. We've got plans next weekend. Man, that's the thing about this church. They eat into your time. This covenant group thing, you've got a covenant group twice a month, and, and then Alpha. I mean, that, that's what I don't like, you know. And, and we feel strongly about all these things, right? feel strongly about them. So when we start feeling strongly, you start feeling like, but I don't want to do that. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because I know I'll catch a lot of flack. I'm a parent. I've got to get into the parenting seminar. So, yeah, I'm going to be here. Now, listen, you traffic over that long enough, and at some point you're going to explode in resentments, and it's going to be a mess. I, I got a letter from someone once. Been in the church for a while. Not really sure of the condition of their salvation. But they eventually departed and departed quite angrily spoke demeaningly of the people of the church and how they lived and their lifestyle and the views from the leadership of the church and issues like tithing. and you know. See, if you're doing all that stuff against your will, at some point you're going to explode in resentment. Because here you are all this time, you've never figured out how to do it from your heart. So the grace of God has appeared to give you the desire to do things from your heart. So that you actually want to do these things, right? I mean, do you, do you sit there and wrestle through every, every time an offering is taken? You know, oh, gosh, here they go. Here they go. But listen, do you, you don't want to do that? Really? I mean, it's not in your heart that you want to do that. See, rather than just working on do it, whether you want to or not, just do it. How about working on the fact that you're going to live your whole Christian life not wanting to do the things that God wants to write on your heart to do? There's a a disconnect here. There's something broken that needs to be fixed. Listen, and and the the world world is watching aspects of your life. I think they they don't watch any aspect of your life more intentionally than they watch you do what you want to do, what you delight in doing. Listen, I know there's some people who would have a view and... um, I'll give you that view that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to reach out to people, you know, I'm trying to, you know, so maybe I go hang out in the bar with them a little bit and, and, you know, I'm trying to show them that Christians can have fun, you know? Listen, if, if you begin to find the world's passions and delights fun and you're going to use that as a means of evangelism, you actually are being counterproductive to evangelism because they already have fun. They don't need that fun from you. They're already having a party. They're already ha- they've already figured out how to have fun and not have God in the picture. They figured that out. So you're not going to join them in that. And, and then you're going to apologize for all the Christian rules that you've ever come across in your life. How about, how about presenting spiritual disciplines and the fact that you attend church and that you have a life that says yes to righteousness the same way Budweiser presents its beer. Why don't you run some ads that sound like that? Right? Like, you know, you never hear anybody, you know, nobody's drinking because they have to. I have to. My dad owns all kinds of stock in Budweiser. Yeah, serve it up. It's delightful. Right? It's fun. Not when Christianity, because, you know, my parents make me go to church. Wow, really? How exciting. Listen, the world has already figured out how to have its fun. What they're looking for in your life is that you've found something more fun. You've found something that can eclipse what they've experienced. And if you don't have that, and you don't have it, trust me, you don't have it. If your heart isn't bursting with desires that look like righteousness and the glory of God. If it's not bursting, then you need to work on bursting. You need to spend some time in the indicative category, pumping up the greatness of God in your heart to where you want to explode on people in what you've found and what you absolutely take delight in. Last area here. Not only does the grace of God appear and teach us to say no to unrighteousness, but it teaches us the desire to say yes. There's an impartation from grace by the Spirit that gives us a desire to say yes. Look what it said in this passage. 
it trains us or teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and on the other side and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. It teaches me to say no to these things, but to say yes to these things. And not only yes to them, but later on, verse 14. God purifies for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. People who are knocking stuff over to get to do that. People who are eager for that. People who have a passion for that. People who want to get out of my way. I want this. Not people who are under some holy day of obligation idea. Going through motions. So what Ezekiel foresaw when he saw God purifying a people for himself, he said, you know, remember... I can make this series go forever, I think. I know I need to stop at some point. But when he talks about, there's a curious little phrase here. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. See, not only unclean practices, but unclean desires. Idols are about desires. Idols are about what I want. God says, not only am I going to purify you from the activities that are sinful and ungodly, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with the things that you want as well. So in the Christian, there is present in us new desires. So when we come to the point of trying to figure out what do I really want? Well, there are new desires. Did you know that? Did you know right written upon your heart? There's something different going on inside of you. you know, what does it look like when, when God brings us to the point where he says, you know, it's God who is at work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. What, what does that look like in daily living? What does it look like when God's calling you to endure and to walk through a difficult season of your marriage where worldly passions would say, cash in your chips and move on? And your friends and relatives may be telling you that as well. How does God who is at work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure... What does that look like in that moment? What does it look like for us when we've invested our lives in parenting and we feel like we're not seeing the fruit that we want to see and we're just kind of banging our heads against that over and over and it's frustrating and we just want to quit? Don't want to do that anymore. Okay, but then the Bible says it's God who's at work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. You know, what is that looking like in that moment to where I'm actually going to want to do the very thing that I might find vile in some moments? I'm going to find myself wanting to do that. Yes. All right, there never was a more vile moment than when the Son of God begins to consider what it will be like to place the sin of those who have sinned against God on himself. And he begins to survey that as it's approaching. And remember, he asked this question in John chapter 12. What should I say, Father? Rescue me from this hour? It is for this hour that I have come. Fulfill your purpose in me. Right? That's God at work to be willing to do of his good pleasure. The Son of God. Listen, you know, I don't know all the circumstances that make up your marriage and your parenting and the things you struggle with. I don't know all that, but I can guarantee you this without knowing your situation. What Jesus Christ looked at in that moment was worse. Far far worse than anything you're experiencing in your life. He was about to receive the sin of people all upon himself. The pure Holy One who had never touched sin was about to be placed on him for punishment and for the removal of the presence of God as it went on. This is, this is a horrific thing. It's still being wrestled through in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. See, the Bible describes Jesus as going to the cross for the joy set before him. Make no mistake, Jesus is not on that cross squirming to get down. This is not a moment of holy obligation. He is doing what he wants to do in that moment. And that same spirit that enabled that in the Son of God 
is the Spirit who's now come and written upon our hearts to enable that in us so that I can find myself wanting to do things that seem very unattractive. Matt or, or Eric, whoever's going to be coming this morning. Listen, in a very real way, you are, you are facing decisions in your life. Right? Decisions about indulging the flesh. Decisions about running for your life from this situation. Decision about giving up. Decisions about rescuing yourself from discomfort and pain. You're, you're facing those decisions in all kinds of categories. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want you to stare those situations in the face. And I want, I want you to get in touch with something here that God has done on the inside of you by the Holy Spirit in Him writing upon your heart. And I want to ask you this. What do you really want in that situation? See, sometimes we never get to this point. We never take the leash off of what we're supposed to do in order to discover what we really want to do. What do you really, really, in your heart, I can ask it to you that way because your heart's been made new. And it's got different writing on it. Read your heart right now. Read what's being molded and shaped by God. Read what is under the influence of the Spirit of God in you. What do you really want in that moment? If you've been seeing me for counseling and you're wrestling through some situation where you want to pull the ripcord on this thing, I probably have asked you this at some point during those conversations. What do you really want? See, because there's something in the Christian that wasn't there before you were Christian. There's a new thing. There's a new day. There's newness of life inside of you. And when you answer from the heart for a Christian, you're going to find... Lord, do I want you to rescue me from this hour? No. I want you to be glorified in this hour. I find that in my heart. I find that I want that more than anything else, God. And through tears, you will say that because there's a part of your flesh that's screaming in that moment going, don't say that. Don't confess willingness to God in this. Don't do it. But listen, if you're a Christian, you know what I'm saying is true. You know right now what I'm saying is true. In your heart, your heart is telling you, I want to endure for the glory of God. I do. Doesn't your heart say that? Let's stand up together. we look through these words we come to realize that there are things that are true that are hidden by the things that are easily accessible there are true desires in our hearts grace has appeared my heart is bursting to go to unprecedented heights. Your grace has come. Your spirit has come by grace. And I find in my heart, deep in my heart perhaps, a zeal for you and for your glory. I find it overgrown with my fleshly desire for ease for comfort, for pleasure, for that which tantalizes and that which I've mislabeled as fun and fulfilling. God, help me. Help me to dig deeper into the work that you've done in my heart to realize that within me, not outside of me, not some Lakeview Christian Center law, not some book I'm supposed to be emulating, Grace is motivating me and persuading me to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires and to say yes 
and to enjoy saying yes and to delight in saying yes to self-control, godly pursuit, zealously pursuing works that show forth your glory. God, I pray for us this morning. God, I pray that these things would not remain unknown to us and unfamiliar to us. God, these things must become more clear. God, I pray for grace in the coming days, not just for this meeting. I pray for grace as people will pick up John Piper's book and begin to see these deeper realities that are in our lives, presence right now. God, may we become convinced more deeply. God, would you pull us off the fences of Christianity where we long for sinful things? God, would you give us an all-consuming and delightful taste of your glory and goodness that causes our hearts to burst forth with new desires to where we are doing what we want to do the most. We're here today, God, because I want to be here. I don't want to be anywhere else. I want to be here. Closing the refrigerator door. I'm changing the channel, God. Not because I have to. Because I want to. I want something. I want to taste something. I want to see something. I don't want anything getting in the way. I want to lighten my load. I want to run hard for the glory of God. I want something, God. May we be a people who are living a life that we really want to live. Because you've made us that way, God.
You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my right. You're my all. You're my all. You're my joy, my right. I love you. And I love you, Lord. It's all about you, Jesus. And all this is for For your glory and your fame, it's not about me. God, you alone, you alone are God. 